I'm Ted Price with Insomniac Games, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. In today's episode, we interview Ted Price, president, CEO, and founder of Insomniac Games. Insomniac has been around for 27 years now, makers of the Ratchet & Clank series, the Spider-Man series, and many other awesome titles. They have a long and storied history across a variety of platforms. Obviously, they were recently acquired by Sony, so are now very focused on Sony hardware. But beyond everything that Ted does to build and make and ship fantastic games through Insomniac, he also runs a wonderful podcast called The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Game Makers Notebook. Uh, I've been a big fan of this podcast for quite a while now, um, both in terms of the quality of the guests that they have on the podcast, uh, the way that they interview, the types of questions that they ask, I find it hugely inspirational and frankly, it's everything I try and achieve on this podcast. So having an opportunity to speak to someone else who's deeply involved in, in, in this process of interviewing, I guess, sort of thought leaders on the art and science of making games was, was really inspiring to me. I hope you enjoy this interview with Ted Price. All right, here we go. Well, first, Ted, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the early start. You said you're a, an early riser. I absolutely identify with that. The morning's the best time of the day. But thank you for being on the podcast so early for you. We always start the same way, introduction, explain who you are, what you do, kind of what gets you out of bed in the morning, and then we'll dive into the interesting questions. So who are okay. you, Ted? My name's Ted Price. I am the president and founder of Insomniac Games. We are a video game development company. We've been around for 27 years. We've made a lot of games, and I love what I do. <laughs> you have made a lot of games. You have been at it for a long time. And, uh, I mean, 27 years, there's not a lot of developers you can point to who have been making games together for 27 years. And when I was thinking about how I wanted to tackle that, the 27-year part, my first instinct was to ask you what's evolved over those 27 years but I thought, you know, you've probably gotten that question a thousand times. And maybe you've gotten this question a thousand times as well, but I haven't heard you answer it. So what's stayed the same in the 27 years that you guys have been making games? Has there been any constants or consistence that have kind of just era after era, epoch after epoch, it's always the same touch point? I think a lot actually has changed. And I don't get that question very frequently, but there are things that have stayed the same. So let me just briefly tell you what's changed. I mean, sure. we've, yeah, do we've actually, we're, we're about 400 people these days. That so means we've grown relatively slowly over the last 27 years. That's you know, an average of 15 people per year jumping in mm -hmm. to join us at Insomniac. There've been periods of fast growth, period of, periods of slow growth. But what's happened as we've grown is that we've realized we've, we needed more structure. When we were smaller, we were wearing all wearing a lot of hats, yeah. doing many different things as individuals, and we become more specialized as, as the industries evolve and as we've evolved. So we've implemented departments. We have much more, as I said, specialists, many more specialists in the company. And it's, it's helped us a lot as we've taken on more complex games. But on the other hand, we definitely have tried to keep several things very consistent over the last 27 years. 
And one has been a heavy focus on culture. It's really okay. important for us to, to make sure that we are collaborative at the core, that we are focusing heavily on transparency so that everybody always knows what's going on all the time, and to ensure that everybody at Insomniac knows that good ideas can come from anywhere. We really do rely on every person at Insomniac to help us come up with the ideas for the games, and just as important, ideas for how we as a company need to evolve to take on what is definitely a uh, non-static industry. Right. That's a, a really important point that great ideas can come from everywhere. I, I like someone once said, everyone is product. And I thought that was a really good way to put it. And, and in games, of course, a great idea can come from everywhere, anywhere. But when you talk about culture, I mean, I think it, it's one thing to talk about transparency. I, I would say you're probably hard pressed to find a developer who's like, no, we really believe in being a closed book and closed doors. And we really like to keep information to ourselves. And, you know, we don't really spread information around the team. I think a lot of people would probably pay lip service to culture and transparency as being important elements. I'm wondering if you have specific examples of like maybe a story or two from the trenches of when you really saw it pay dividends. Do you know what I mean? Like sure. where. I, I it might be easier for me just to give you some specific examples of how we try to walk that walk every day. Every single day for the last, I'd say, seven years, I have answered an Ask Me Anything question. We ask all insomniacs to send in questions about anything they want. Uh, it could be really a, a tough question, a question about our future, a question, uh, it could be a more straightforward question about a feature in a game, it could be a question about our sales. You name it. And every day I send out an answer to all insomniacs to explain more about the company that most people just may not understand simply because they're focused on one aspect of production or another. That's great. And I'm not the only one who answers. I will often share the questions with other people throughout the entire company if I can't answer the question myself. So the key is not to have anything that's really is hidden. Another example is we have multiple teams working on different projects all the time. And we don't hide any of that information from anybody. The, the projects share constantly within Insomniac. So every week we have a blog that we share throughout the entire company, which shows off the really cool stuff that's being done. And as part of that process, we also ask people who maybe not, who aren't working on a specific project to jump over and help focus test or mm. provide creative feedback on projects. So the, the goal here is to make sure, as I said, that everybody knows what's going on at all times, not just now, but also when it comes to our future plans. Mm -hmm. I like that very much. And the blog ones, certainly, I mean, whether it be a confluence or a wiki or, you know, whatnot, I've, I have definitely been at companies who have tried that before, but the, the ask me anything, that's a really interesting one. I've not heard that one before. I might steal that. <laughs> well, it's, it's become something that's a tradition. And I will say that when I go on vacation occasionally or I'm out of the office, I feel really guilty about not sending it out. So right. I've tried not to miss many days over the last seven years. That's uh, fantastic. I, I, I will <laughs> add that one thing that's important too for us is not just sharing internally. We, we do share externally. So we are now a part of Sony and it has been wonderful to be able to share ideas, techniques, strategies with our sister studios within Sony. So we yeah. make a big effort to reach out and, and also to, to welcome any information coming in with the other first-party studios. And it, it's a really good feeling for all of us at Insomnia because we feel like we're part of a, 
a big effort to to have a lasting and, and positive impact on people with the games we make and the games that other first party studios make. Yeah, and 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 you're in good company. That's quite a network of first party studios that Sony has put together. So the the brain trust that is created by all of those fantastic studios sharing knowledge, best practices, ideas, hopes, dreams, aspirations, etc. That must be it'd be fun to be a fly on that wall. Let me just put it that way cuz yeah, again, that, that's quite a powerful collection of, of talent in that network. Well, we, we certainly um, learned that we all face the same challenges all the time. Yeah, no question. It's amazing how much is common, right? Like, <laughs> Obviously, we all have our unique challenges and that sort of thing. But for sure, I mean, back in the day when we used to get to go to GDC or whatnot, it was amazing how much we could commiserate with each other, regardless of the projects or the platforms or the companies or the timelines. There's definitely a lot, a lot of commonality. One thing that has not been a pure constant for Insomniac has been single platform. So obviously you guys have sometimes done some multi-platform stuff, but focusing on a single platform seems to have been something that maybe you spent most of the 27 years doing. Is that fair to say that you usually focused on a single platform? I think that's fair to say. We've definitely made multi-platform games. But the the reason that we have stuck mainly to single platform games is the ability to focus. When we can dive deeper uh, into the the hardware and really take advantage of it for a single platform, it means that our games can stand out technically and and, and artistically. Mm-hmm. And it's also brought us even closer to Sony, who is the the publisher we have worked with the most over the yeah. last twenty seven years, and now yeah. we're part of them. Yeah. But our engine is multi platform. Okay. So we have we have shipped games on uh, Xbox platforms, PlayStation platforms, and PC as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, great, you already answered the question about what does the the focus? I mean, what does a single platform give you? It gives you focus, and and then that led to you talking about the fact that your engine is multi platform. I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know your custom platform versus the sort of, what do you want to call it? The standard commercially available options. And I'm not looking for feature list or, you know, that kind of thing, but for sure there has been a a trend towards Unity and Unreal in the last decade. I would say more and more developers are probably moving in that direction. And then there are some who are continuing to stay with what they know, right? Whether it's an engine they've been using for years or an engine that they built themselves and know for years. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about some of the benefits that Insomniac sees in sticking with its own engine. I can't, I imagine that the guys from Unreal and Unity have probably knocked on your door a few times and sort of said, hey, Ted, you want to try? And yet you guys have kind of fought that off. And and I'm just wondering if you can talk at all about that. (laughs) I wouldn't say we fought it off. I mean, we we we're always open minded about you know how to make resisted the temptation. <laughs> well, we did make a game with Unity. We made a game called okay. Song of the Deep, which was a two oh, okay. D Metroidvania style game. And the that. reason we did that was because our engine is hardcore three D engine where we really focused on high end performance, and a two D side scroller was not necessarily the best fit. So we did work with Unity on that one game out of the many games we've made. But when it comes to a choice, right, when you want, when you as a developer need to decide, should I use an off-the-shelf engine or build our own? I think that choice is 
become a little bit more easy today, depending on what you're making. Creating an engine team and building your own is a pretty massive undertaking. Anybody who has tried it will tell you that. And building your own, the con of it is that you are spending a lot of time updating it, ensuring that you are able to be competitive with not just the engine, but the tools that you're using to build your game. And we fortunately have an incredible team of engineers who have been focusing on our own engine and tools for many years and refining them based on the conversations they have with gameplay programmers and artists and designers and audio engineers. So what we have done is created something that really works well for us. Mm -hmm. And that leads to the pro. I think the big pro when it comes to building your own technology is you create what you need for the games you're making. That's right. We know, uh, for example, for Spider-Man, our engine was already well-suited to a big city-based world because we had used it on Sunset Overdrive. And Mm -hmm. we refined it further and pushed it a lot harder to create New York City for Spider-Man, where you can swing anywhere and we've got uh, pretty, I'll say, wonderful rendering technology and streaming technology. Just crazy amazing, fast really yeah. industry class streaming and load times. So kudos to your team. That was amazing. Well, they are there. I will say they are awesome. I, I I am just constantly in awe of what they can do. But you know that is that a, it's a choice we made many many years ago, and I think it's really paid off for us in that it is when we make a decision about what types of games we're going to make next, it's in concert with our core technology team. We all get together and we ask ourselves. You know, what, what's going to be what's going to be the best combination of a cre- cool, creative approach with the technology that we have? And then how can the two complement each other moving forward as we try to push the envelope on both the technical and the artistic side? Yeah, no, that's great. And I think I know the answer, to, but I'm going to ask anyways, because I actually didn't know the answer. I didn't know that you guys had done a game in Unity. So I just want to um, remove all of my assumptions. The uh, first of all, does your editor have a name? Does your engine have an internal code name? The Insomniac Engine. Insomniac Engine. Have you ever thought about or talked about or act- actively licensed Insomniac Engine out to any other developer, or has it always been one hundred percent internally used at Insomniac? We've actually shared our code with other okay. developers, and we've been pretty open about the techniques we use. And in fact, we've had several versions of our engine over the years, and we made a big shift. Gosh over a decade ago where we went after we finished our last resistance game to, to to a more modern approach that we have now in our engine and at that time respawn was getting started and vince called me up and and we we shared some of our technology with them just so they could get off the ground mm-hmm. and and I, they never used it for their games but it was something that we wanted to do to help out so we gave them our engine and tools and they used it for i think prototyping and, and that's the kind of thing that we like doing. And frankly, I feel like one can get really precious about one's technology and believe that there's a lot of special sauce and sort of proprietary algorithms that are necessary to keep under lock and key. But ultimately, it's how one uses the tools and the engine. It's the execution that really results in a fantastic game or maybe a mediocre game. It's, yeah. it's, there's so many other factors that go into it. So my point is, I think sharing is good for the industry, sharing, certainly sharing techniques and, and, and more. And uh, there, you know, that saying, a rising tide floats all boats. And mm-hmm. we all, even though we're all competitors, we are in this together. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's great. 
That's really great to hear. Let's shift gears outside of Insomniac and more towards making AAA games, because you obviously have a wealth of knowledge about that, and I'm interested to pick your brains a bit about it. So, you know, over the years, games have gotten bigger, budgets have gotten bigger, teams have gotten bigger, games have gotten more expensive, blah, 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 etc. Do you think our capacity to make games is evolving at pace with the demands, or is one outstripping the other? Do you think games, the appetite for big games is evolving faster than our ability to maturely make those games with healthy, sane, well-rounded production practices? Or is there some catching up to do there? Or have you seen a huge spike somewhere where it's like, as an industry or as a team, you you feel like people made huge leaps and bounds that kind of caught up to the overall industry appetite? So there are a couple of things to to address there. First is just the general efficiencies one can discover when making games. It's really important, I think, for all of us to analyze every single production and ask ourselves, what could we, what could we have done better? Yeah. Right. We do, we do postmortems. We do uh, a lot of looking back on what went wrong during our productions. And we do try to improve those things for the next production. And in a lot of cases, what went wrong was we made decisions too late or we were we changed midstream and it affected how people worked and or changed our timelines and those things are really important to tackle because they're you know we make decisions every single day but having the i'd say motivation to make earlier and more informed decisions is is a uh, key for all of us who are in this crazy you know let's build something that nobody's ever seen before business so that's something we talk about a lot at Insomniac, and we try to make better decisions earlier on every project. But then in, in addition to that, when it comes to the efficiency one discovers when building things, there are other tools that we use more and more today to help take on the larger scope of our games, procedural tools. A good example is Houdini, which oh, yeah. we, have, we have integrated into our workflow, and it enables us to create you know, a giant city like uh, New York with less brute force efforts, even though it is incredibly challenging, we can be smarter mm-hmm. about how we lay out the city and, and make changes to the buildings, et cetera. I mean, Miles Morales is a good example of how we took New York and transformed it into winter without having to rebuild the city. And a lot of that had to do with our tools at Insomniac and our use of Houdini and other procedural tools to make that transition a lot more intelligent in terms of how we approached it. I also want to just talk briefly about the audience and expectations. You know, games are games do seem to get bigger and bigger in terms of the hours one plays, but we may have hit a tipping point. It seems like there are plenty of games out there now that are not 120 hours. Mm-hmm. They are, maybe they're 20 hours. Yep. And I think a lot of this has to do with the improvements in storytelling. Okay. If you look at many of the games coming in out of, Sony first party, there is a big focus on having narrative and design really, really well integrated and taking the player on a journey that isn't necessarily 100 hours long, but it is a compelling journey over, say, 20 hours, where yeah. you are asking players to become invested in the characters. And really, the, the, the opportunity is to have players walk away being changed in some fashion, emotionally, mm-hmm. from the story you're telling. That takes 
an immense amount of effort, but I also think it's a nice shift away from this idea that you've got to have a ridiculously long game to truly entertain people. I think you're right. And I guess maybe when I said, you know, whatever, increasing consumer expectations, I, I, I think that goes laterally as well as, you know, horizontally as well as vertically, right? So some people, you know, would take that to mean more and bigger. Assassin's Creed, Valhalla, you know, multiple worlds, multiple quest lines, multiple playable characters, online content, uh, mini games, side quests, blah, 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 very big. And and I, I love AC Valhalla. I don't, no offense to my friends at UBs, I just realistically don't think I'll ever get to finish it. But I, you know, I did drop 20, 30, 40 hours or something like that into it and really enjoyed those 30 hours. I had a great time. Uh, and then life caught up with me. And then, and then there is the, what you're sort of saying, like that more maybe condensed experience. And to me, I would kind of call that more like a vertical, right? And, you know, Naughty Dog is yeah. obviously a great example of people who've really mastered that craft. But again, let's acknowledge it's not like that is easier than that. Cause that's a huge challenge as well. Cause they're pushing the envelope in a whole other set of ways in terms of fidelity, narrative, design, you know, their technical challenges might not be the same as AC Valhalla's technical challenges, but there's a significant, you know, laundry list of them as well. So it does feel to me that when you're making a triple A, whether it's big open world or incredibly rich, high fidelity, you're always faced with these increasing expectations as a team, as an industry, as an audience to do more. And again, not every game falls into that category. There is a huge appetite for indie experiences. There's a huge appetite for the smaller experiences. But I do think even in the linear or or narrative heavy games, there's that, there can be that big challenge of growing expectations as well. Do you think Naughty Dog will have an easy time with Last of Us 3? I guess is another way to put it. I I mean, I can't comment on Naughty Dog. I can certainly comment on, on Insomniac. I think that we know that players' expectations do continue to increase, especially if you put out a game that's popular, right? Yeah. You, they, people want more, but they also want a game that's familiar. Yeah. And the challenge that we usually have is walking that tightrope. What can we yeah. do that is fresh for players, that creates an experience that feels new in some ways, but also comfortable in other ways so that it's not alien when players fire up a sequel? Yeah. And that that's a, that's a tricky one, but it's yeah. also a really... It's a great challenge to have because it means that if the first game succeeded, at least you're starting from a place where you know the basic IP is is attractive to people and you have an audience who is ready for more. Now we've been in situations where we've built IP that haven't been popular right out the gate. And it's been a challenging conversation internally to ask, okay, do we want to even think about a sequel or should we just move mm-hmm. on to something else? And so it's easy to take for granted the success of of any franchise and 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 we don't do that (laughs) given that we've been on the other side that's right well certainly i'll play as many spider-man games as you guys want to crank out so i wanted to talk about distributed work i've listened to a bunch of your podcast episodes and i'll get into the podcast as a whole because i think that's a really interesting topic but Obviously, one caught my attention, an old friend and colleague of mine, Clint Hawking. You you had a really great interview, I thought, with him, I guess, what was that, six months ago or something like that? And in that conversation, he touched a little bit about how COVID forced 
UB and basically the industry to get really good at distributed collaboration real fast because we kind of had no choice. We went from zero to 100 or I guess 100 to zero all at once and everyone had to go home and we all had to learn how to work distributed. Some could argue that the beginning of the end of the tunnel light one day we can once again possibly fathom that there might be some return to normalcy somewhere before we all die. So people are beginning to talk about return in some way, shape, or form. Do you have any lessons that you guys have learned from the last, I guess, 12 months or 13 months of probably almost 100% distributed collaboration that you want to make sure persists regardless of what post-COVID work life looks like? That no matter what, whether it's all in back at the office or distributed or hybrid or what, that these lessons persist and you guys continue to work this way because it's been really good for you and the way you guys make games. Well, we definitely believe Zoom, whether you love it or hate it, is here to stay. Yeah. And having the opportunity to be connect across the country, wherever you are, instantly and have a face-to-face conversation is something that we had not really taken advantage of often prior to the pandemic. And what we had been doing was having cross-country meetings because we have a North Carolina office and a Burbank office. And we would, we'd have a group of people sitting in one conference room in California and another folk, a group of folks in a conference room in North Carolina, and we'd be separated essentially by a TV screen. Mm -hmm. And the challenge that we found there was that it created us, sometimes an us versus them mentality where the conversation would be weighted towards one or the other side, depending on who was driving the meeting. Right. So the other challenge is that with uh, having having a 10 people in a conference room on a big TV screen, it's really hard, as you know, to see what other people are, are thinking, uh, you know, what their expressions are, what their body language is. Absolutely. And so Zoom changed all of that because clearly we're all in little Brady Bunch squares as we are having these meetings. So that has helped us think differently about how we're going to collaborate in the future. Plus, we have insomniacs who are now more spread out throughout the country, and it's important for us to have everybody feel included all the time in our meetings. Mm -hmm. So that's one challenge we are beginning to sort of untangle as we think about moving back into the office for some folks. Mm -hmm. How are we going? and, And we don't have a good answer yet for how we're going to have meetings, but I can guarantee you it will be different. And that's one of the lessons we've learned. Another lesson is that we've now really doubled down on remote editing tools. So in other words, having level meetings where we are you know, drawing on top of uh, a playthrough, which is something that we had never really considered before, but it allows more collaboration in terms of having people who are spread around, around the country to participate versus prior if you didn't happen to be in the same office when we were talking about a gameplay feature or a level, an object in a level which needs to be modified, it was really difficult to participate. Now we have much better tools to do so, regardless of where you are located. And I'd say the big, the third thing that the pandemic has really helped us focus on is just well-being in general. You know, with okay. everybody having a different situation at home and feeling different degrees of sort of happiness based on being in the away from the office, we've made a much bigger effort on asking, how are you doing, right? What, what can we do to ensure that you maintain well-being as you are 
working remotely, dealing with family issues, dealing with the stress that comes being in the middle of a global pandemic. And that is uh, changed for the, for the better our approach as we move ahead in terms of ensuring that we are constantly asking questions about health, our, mm. our, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, how is everybody doing? And then acting on it, figuring out ways that we can make the work environment, whether it's in the office or at home, better for people. Yeah, I mean, I think those are, I think those are three great uh, takeaways and lessons. And, and I agree with you that I think a lot of people are probably facing that issue of trying to predict what the return back to some sort of office life is going to be like it. The only thing I think I can say with confidence is it's going to be harder because the benefit of the COVID lockdown was that everyone had no choice. So, so I mean, maybe there were technical challenges, but we all knew from day two that we were all in the same boat. And I, I can predict that as we try and move back to some sort of something, some sort of hybrid, there'll be some people who want to move back more quickly, some people who want to move back more slowly, some people who want to move back full-time, some people who want to move back part-time. And I can see some challenging months there as we try and establish some sort of new rhythm or normalcy, but only time will yeah. tell. Anyone I, who says I, they know for sure, they're trying to sell you something. Obviously. I mean, that's where, if you look back to a year ago, we were figuring it out a year ago in terms of what's what our new existence is going to be. Same thing's going to happen when we all begin to go back to the offices. For us, the key is flexibility, right? Yeah. We have, everybody has modified their lifestyle in some fashion over this last year. I don't think there are yes. any exceptions to that. And for us at Insomniac, the key is to ensure that the things that people have discovered work well for them can continue to work well for them. Because I don't want to take this, you know, this, this terrible event, which has led to some positive changes and, and squander that, yeah. right? I, I want to make sure that we can build on the things that were good about how we changed our workflow and how we improved communication and how we really improved our culture in pretty trying times. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think that's great. Can we talk about your podcast for a few minutes? Sure. I guess what motivated it? When did you start? Uh, well, first of all, just for everyone who's listening, who hasn't heard it, it's called the Game Maker's Notebook. You can find it, I think, everywhere. It's been running two, three years, uh, a while. For a few years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so can you just set it up and explain what motivated it and sort of what you're trying to achieve with it? Sure. A few, I think a few of us had the same idea at the same time. A couple of us on the board of the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences and a few mem staff members of the Academy were all sort of wondering how can we elevate the Academy's message, which is to you know, share how important the art and craft of game development is uh, with the rest of the world. And how can we do so in a unique way? And so what we decided was, well, we have access to the experts, right? The folks who are making the games. And this is, we have constant conversations with developers across the world. Let's share those conversations with everybody who's interested in our industry, whether they're they, whether they've been in the industry for three decades or they're just thinking about someday getting into it. And the motivation is to educate others on how, on the many, many different approaches we all take to culture, development, technology. And then secondly, to potentially create a historical archive, right? Oh, I, I would love it if in 75 years, people actually look back on this and go, 
oh, that's what it was like. <laughs> that's that's what it took to make games in the early 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> Way back when. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. I had the historical archive one is a really interesting one. I hadn't thought of that angle, but of course there is huge historical historical value in these conversations because these are the people who lived it, right? And for sure, I mean, one of my early podcasts was with Brenda Romero. Do you know Brenda? Have you had a chance to meet her at all? I I have. She actually, she's wonderful. She came to Insomniac several years ago to give us a speech on just some some fantastic topics, which we thought were really relevant to to what we do. And she, but I, I will, I will say that kind of to, to your point, we aren't the only ones who are doing this. Yeah. The Smithsonian actually has an effort to archive talks with some of the pioneers in the industry. And I was able to go to a talk by the creators of Space Wars, which was just a <laughs> mind-blowing event for me because these guys right built a video game in the 60s on a PDP <laughs> console, which is- Step above again, punch cards. <laughs> exactly. And- and they, what was even more impressive was that I remember it, how much fun that game was because I didn't play it on a PDP. I, I wasn't even born when they created right. it, but playing it in the arcades when I was a kid playing Space Wars was one of the reasons I actually got into the industry because I remember mm. how much fun it was and just how, how I wanted to do something like this. Yeah. Anyway, having these guys who are in their, I think at the time I saw the panel, they were in their late eighties and, and not all of them were still alive but they were sharing their experiences. And to me, it was inspiring. Absolutely. And I hope that, you know, what we all do as podcasters who are talking about games, I hope we can in- inspire others who maybe are young, maybe they're in elementary school and they're thinking about games as a, as a career and they want to know more. So mm-hmm. we can help. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've been doing it for some years, three years or whatever it is you've done. You yourself have done many interviews, although I know you're not the only interviewer. I've seen a bunch of episodes where Robin is also, she's doing interviews as well. So there may be others. Um, Robin is fantastic. And she is, she was one of my favorite guests on the show because she's so articulate and she, she has so much to say about inclusiveness and diversity in the games business. And, you know, selfishly, I, I asked all my daughters to listen to Robin because she was explaining how important it is for women to be more involved in the video game industry and yeah. was explaining how she got into it and how and, and ex- sharing her lessons learned as a leader in the industry. But I'm I'm so happy that she's also a host now and she yeah. has she has some wonderful interviews. I've only had the pleasure of meeting her once at a GDC. I'm almost certain it was through Clint and it wasn't a very long conversation, but she certainly made that impression on me where, I mean, 15 years later, I see her name and I remember, oh, yeah, I remember when I met her. I remember what she said. She has a way of making an impression on you. And I think she, so I'm, it's wonderful that she's doing the interviews as well because they're very insightful. I guess this question is specifically to you, though, which is that has, and and I have a selfish requ- a selfish reason for asking this, has, the, has doing the podcast taught you something that you've then turned around and applied to you, your job as a leader, your job as a game maker, your job as a CEO. Do you remember any particular lessons learned or interviews that kind of stood out for you where you, you were drawing specific learnings from it? Or, or has it been more, 
more broad, would you say? In, because we cover different topics in every interview, it's been a little bit more broad. What I really like hearing is the approach that people have to brainstorming okay. and, and how they different teams approach brainstorming differently. And it's kind of useful for, for me and the insomniacs because we are always brainstorming, right? We're always getting people together to come up with solutions to problems or maybe new ideas for games. And it's useful to hear, well, this person had six people get together in a room for two weeks and they had, they voted on ideas. This person actually focused on user testing their ideas before they ever went ahead and, and embraced something. And here are the pros and cons. So that's, those, I'm not going to pull out a specific example because those are, you know, there are lots of them. Yeah, the other thing fine. I really love hearing about is culture, about okay. how folks think about development culture within their studios and what they do to educate their teams on not just game subjects, but management. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do for, for those who, who want to be managers? I think it's really informative for us. And then I, I love, I'll just say the individual stories. Like yeah. Eric Wolpa was somebody who was just on the Game Maker's Notebook and asking him for advice uh, for writers was great because his answer was, don't be a writer. <laughs> I just, and I, he, he, he explained what he meant in the podcast and he explained why being a writer is challenging in the games business. And, but, but at the same time, he explained how to overcome some of the hurdles that a writer has when you're working with a large production team that is reliant on you to either come up with ideas or to solve narrative problems so that they can do their work. So they're all informative in a very different way. And what I try to do also is just share them with insomniacs because I think going back to what I said at the very beginning of this podcast, when we can share information and and learn from others, it just makes us better. Yeah, absolutely. As you were saying that, don't be a writer. I just, that's like a total clickbaity header for that podcast episode. (laughs) It is, yes. Ted Price, don't be a writer. Click here to well, learn more. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear. I didn't say that. Eric said <laughs> No, no, I know. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the clickbait era. Anything to get those clicks. Although I think that's a great example. I love that. The little stories. And I'll have to, I'll listen to that episode because now I'm super curious. He's great. He's, he's super smart, super funny. Yeah. You said it just came out? Yeah. Okay, great. So it'll be the latest one then. Let's talk about AAA and console. I have a definition of AAA. I'd, I'd love to hear yours. So what does AAA mean? What, well, I guess, you, what does AAA mean to Insomniac? It generally means a broad audience, right? Making a game that has a, a potential for, to, to be relevant to a large and diverse audience. Usually that has to do with the subject matter, the accessibility of the game, and the genre. Okay. So if, if you look at most of our games, we have been mostly focused in the action-adventure genre, which is yeah. a, a pretty broad category. It allows us to create control schemes that are, are very accessible and, and use mechanics that are easy to pick up at first, but go deep. Mm-hmm. And then I also believe that for us, at least, it means high production values. So we do spend a lot of time, whether the game is stylized or, real, or photorealistic, digging into making sure our shaders, our lighting, the fidelity is as good as we can possibly make it for for the games and then for us especially our games are generally pretty story driven so we put a lot of emphasis on 
character arcs, on ensuring that the story follows a multi-act structure, and that players are left with you know, some sort of positive effect. I mean, we, we want to have a lasting and positive impact on people. And so the stories we tell are really important to us in terms of showing how a character evolves and learns something. That's, we're not trying to be too pedantic, right? But right. We, we do hope that people walk away being emotionally impacted in some way from our games. Okay. And it sounds like almost every game you guys have ever met made then fits that. Is that... Would you say that's the case? You've always then made no, AAA? No, it is not the case. Okay. We have made several mobile games as well. Uh, they were sort of smaller games that we put out as, you know, in essence, an experiment to see if we could make a, a jump into the mobile market. And this was also after we had started making Facebook games. So we did this in the Resistance era. While we were making Resistance, we had a small team that was first making Facebook games and then jumped into mobile. And we learned a lot from that. It, we, we learned that we were probably a little late getting <laughs> into that market and that we weren't particularly well-suited to make small games. That was, that was an important learning that we discovered and probably weren't ready to accept until maybe several years after we had left the mobile games industry. So it was important that we, tr- I thought it was important that we tried. And that's the beauty of of being a game developer. There are many, many avenues that are always in front of you and you just have to decide, you know, which one to take. And sometimes you will go down the wrong road. And if you can survive and get back onto a path that makes more sense for your team, you generally come back with some really good learnings. I 100% agree. And I love the fact that you said we probably weren't well positioned to make small games. Do you think you learned enough to say what it takes to make a small game? Did, did, did you guys come out of there saying, here's how successful small games are, are made, and this is why that's not us? <laughs> oh, man. I don't think we were that specific okay. about what it would take to make a small game. I think we realized that we have a general tendency to focus heavily on getting all the details right in everything that we do. And, right. and, and also to put more and more ideas into our games versus being self-constrained. Yeah. Certainly that has been, that was the case in the first decade and a half of our existence. And, and it continues to some degree, though, I think we've gotten better at scope control, but we are, our mentality generally is we want to go big with the things that we do. And it's much more difficult to, to really contain that for okay. us. Okay. Okay, so we've talked about AAA, some of your smaller game experiments, but you've also done some work for VR, and your team has obviously shipped some VR games. You guys have talked a bit about VR and your, I don't know, your thoughts and feelings about the platform. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and sort of where your head is at these days about VR? At the time, VR was a great experience for us. We had the opportunity to make some smaller games in scope. And Oculus was looking for developers who were interested in diving in, and and we did. We learned a lot about designing for VR. At first, we didn't realize how different it really is than from standard console development. But the team did plenty of experiments. We modified some of our technology, and we were very enthusiastic about forging ahead and and creating some new experiences for us and we thought for players as well in our VR games. I will say that what we discovered is that VR 
is still in his infancy. Yeah. What what I hope happens is that VR companies continue to push ahead with modifications to the form factor. To me, personally, it's all about the headset. If you can make the headsets lighter, untethered, higher fidelity, create better tracking, these are all things that will lead to, I think, more widespread acceptance. And of course, the VR companies know that. Mm -hmm. What is also awesome about VR is it does give a wider selection of developers of all sizes the opportunity to jump in and just do things that nobody has imagined before. I also think that sort of as a corollary, there's a a great appetite for new IP from VR consumers. And when you look at all of the VR games that have been released over the last five years or so, it's amazing how many brand new IPs have cropped up. It's, It's really, really cool. So VR has done some some very positive things for our industry. And frankly, I hope it continues to evolve because what it looks like now will probably be very different than what it looks like in 10 years. Absolutely. And so so I guess it, it would then, if I'm hearing you properly, there may well be a, another kick at the VR can from Insomniac if and when the opportunity presents itself. Because you guys did learn a lot, right? And if the industry evolves to the point where maybe some of the lessons you learned can be applied, you guys might take that opportunity. And I think that would be amazing because I think one of the things that it's sort of sad to see or to think about is this idea of all of these great developers doing all this awesome stuff in VR, saying, eh, it's not quite there yet, and then leaving it and not coming back to it once things have evolved and not helping, you know, uh, take those lessons and apply them to stuff. So I'd, I'd well, love you're, to you're see making it some, You're two. making some strong assumptions based on what I said. So <laughs> I, I want to correct those. I, I have learned to say, never say never, right? However, That's I fair. think it is unlikely that we will go back to VR anytime soon. Okay. Yeah. Do you think there is a, in the industry, is there, in the VR industry, is there one element of it? You you were talking about form factor, you were talking about, you know, tracking and fidelity and that sort of stuff. Was there one thing your team saw as the biggest barrier to entry, the thing that's most preventing VR from reaching kind of more widespread adoption. I've heard some people say they think it's the cable. I'm wondering if you guys thought it was a sing- a- another one thing or is it the package? We didn't make any assumptions about why VR didn't take off like a rocket ourselves. Okay. We were more focused on what we could do within, at that time, the limitations of VR to deliver a really compelling experience that took advantage of the medium. And I think that with every game that we release, we learn more about how we could answer the question, why VR? Okay. Right? It wasn't for us, ultimately, it wasn't worth making a game for VR if we couldn't take advantage of the special opportunities that the medium gives us. So with every game, we figured out better ways to use locomotion without creating disorientation. We figured out better tricks for using for, t- for taking advantage of the controllers. And we, and we experimented with gameplay that really couldn't be delivered on our, in a standard console. So those are the things that you know, we were focused on as we sort of evolved in making our own VR games. And I think many other companies who are exclusively focused on VR have taken it a lot further right. than we ever did. And yeah. that's, that's super cool. And it's, I will also say that it's been really gratifying as a, as a consumer to watch the evolution of the headsets. I mean, the Quest 2 is 
is awesome, is amazing. Yeah. And the games that are made specifically for the Quest 2 today are really, really fun. So anyway, I know that a lot of insomniacs are going to continue to play and be enthusiastic about VR games. And so we'll see where it goes. Cool. No, I think that's... Well, first of all, thanks for the correction. And I think that's a good way to close the loop on VR. And and then if we take a step back at sort of AAA again and the history of Insomniac, do you look at it in terms of like, quant? were there quantum leaps in terms of technology that really moved your team's abilities to, to deliver experiences forward, were those, were they always aligned with the, the consoles or did you guys have sort of breakthrough moments, maybe offset with the new console generations? Is the question clear? Maybe, maybe it isn't. I, I'll try and sure. re- well, repose I, it if it's not. No, it's okay. I, I can okay. answer it in my own fashion. We are always wrestling with challenges associated with production right? The question, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier. The question is, how can we make a game, keep everybody healthy and deliver something that fans are going to be excited about at a fairly large scale? And a lot of that comes down to not just our production practices, but our tools. And so back in the mid 2000s, when we were working on the Resistance series, once we had finished Resistance 3, we made the decision to overhaul our tools and our tech to take a more real-time focus on building in elements in our games and seeing them in our tools in real time, which mm-hmm. sounds like a no-brainer now. But back then, it wasn't something that any of us were, were used to, and it wasn't something that I think a lot of development teams did. So if you wanted to see objects being populated in a game real-time or, or look at how real-time lighting affected your environments without having to run through a two-hour baking process, that was something that we didn't support. But the engine, the, the, our core team, which is our engine and tech team, mm-hmm. made the decision in concert with all of our production departments to, to just rethink how we do our tools and tech. And, and it made a huge difference in terms of our, how, how fast we could put games together. And that had a lot to do with increasing the time we had to experiment in our games, experiment with gameplay, mechanics, and instead of having to wait for long builds and kind of guess at the things that we were doing in our tools and hope that they came out the other end on the console looking good. So that was a big paradigm shift for us, technically. Now, along the way, we also have taken story a lot more seriously as we've matured. Back when we were making Spyro the Dragon and the first Ratchet and Clanks, the story was written by people like Brian Hastings, who's our uh, chief creative strategist, and, and me, and our head of animation. We all just kind of collaborated on what we thought might be you know, fun, funny, entertaining. And we, while we thought we were taking a fairly professional approach to writing, I don't think we really were. So we began bringing on professional writers, folks who have made writing their career and really, really understand the craft. And today at Insomniac, we have a writing department, which is, is a big change for us. But it means to me that we take story much more seriously. And we also think about it in terms of, of game. Yeah. How, do, how can narrative truly support design and vice versa? And that means that the writers who are part of our writing group are in some ways designers, but in, in many ways, they're working with every single discipline within Insomniac to ensure that that writing uh, is, the story is reflected, not just in the dialogue, 
but in the art, in the animation, in the gameplay itself, so that it becomes more cohesive and it feels different than if you were just to watch you know, a more linear form of narrative. So that's another big change um, that we've, we've made. And I'll say the, the, the last thing that has helped in terms of moving ahead and thinking about games as sort of a, you know, these, these, tackling them as these massive endeavors is the way we the way we produce assets. I mean, in terms of new techniques like scanning, right? We, we now scan a lot of what we do, whether it's people or props, and that allows us to increase fidelity at a much, much faster rate than if we were doing everything by hand. Furthermore, mocap was something that we, it sounds pedestrian, right? Now everybody does mocap, but 10 years ago, nope, <laughs> we were doing everything by hand. And we just couldn't get the same sense of weight and anticipation and all the things that are important to create believable characters on screen. And a lot of the things you've talked about, and I think those are great answers about sort of these major paradigm shifts. So so thank you for getting my question, because I didn't feel like I asked it very eloquently, but you got it anyways, and that's wonderful. At no point in time did you explicitly say visual fidelity, although a lot of the things you've talked about sort of support and drive visual fidelity. Do you guys have just like overall visuals, like sort of, yeah, do you have aspirations towards visual fidelity as part of your driving force in the same way that narrative is, in the same way that story is? Because your games look great and they always have. So if you just accidentally got there, I would have been surprised, but maybe that's the case. I'd say from day one, back in 1994, visual fidelity has been pretty close to the top of what we need to achieve. And, and that's, that has a lot to do with how we've built our engines and how we approach composition of our missions, levels, you name it. The list goes on and on. So we know that games are a highly, highly visual art form. And yeah. what's wonderful is that that art takes so many different uh, forms you know, across indie games, AAA games, stylized games, realistic games, whatever it is, uh, we want to deliver what we think is the most compelling visual experience we can. And because we make Ratchet & Clank, which is a stylized game, and Spider-Man, which is a realistic game, we try to ensure that our art satisfies both stylized and non and non-stylized at and is reaching kind of setting a bar in both of those areas. So that's a, that's the last thing I'll say about this is that it really is a collaborative effort between artists and 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 our core team. I'd say the same is true with audio. We've made a huge effort to ensure that audio continues to be elevated in terms of its presence in our yes. games through 3D audio now on the PlayStation 5, music composition Mixing is so much that goes on behind the scenes to create a believable and compelling audio bed that often is missed by players, right? Because audio isn't front and center, but man, does it make a difference, right? If you it try playing does. a game with the sound off, <laughs> it's, it's just terrible. not the same. And then yeah. when you play it with surround sound or like a good headset and you go, oh, yeah, and that's great. And I, I very much agree that audio is something that can make a huge difference. And as someone who has worked in games and has worked with audio teams and, and seen just the challenges that they faced at being at the end of the waterfall time and time again and having to kind of wait for everyone to do their work before they could do theirs. And a lot of the sort of maybe older school production practices and how that 
converge towards audio and put a lot of pressure on audio right at the end of production, I think there is a ton that can be done there. And it sounds like you guys are exploring some of that. So yay, because audio is huge. Yeah. I mean, we've been exploring it for a long, long time. And I'll I'll give a lot of credit to our audio team for being forward thinkers uh, and as well as our core team. And the audio team on Miles Morales just won a BAFTA. So that's, that was really exciting for us. That's the Insomniacs and Sony team together working on audio. Oh, kudos. That's amazing. Yeah. Closing question that I have, Ted, has to do with where the industry is going. Obviously, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen a lot. You've seen consoles come and go. You've seen trends come and go. Your company has stayed incredibly consistent through all of it. Are there any uh, trends right now or areas of development that you see that are particularly exciting, that are really catching yours and Insomniac's attention as a place you think the industry can do a lot of growing in the next few years? I think there are always places where we can improve technically in the industry, but the part that excites me the most is where we can experience cultural growth within the industry. I think over the last few years, we've seen a much, much greater attention paid to diversity and inclusion, both in our games and in our companies. And for us at Insomniac, it's been crucial to reach out to more diverse groups of applicants and to ensure that we help anybody who's interested, uh, especially if you're from an underrepresented group, understand we're an industry that welcomes more points of view and we need more diverse points of view to tell more varied stories and to share, I think, a broader range of experiences. That's really key for us at Insomniac. And I think it's key for all of us who are storytellers and want to make a positive impact on the world. Awesome. Great closing message. Ted, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Thanks for sharing your morning with us and your insights and thoughts. I found it incredibly insightful. I'm I'm a big fan of Insomniac and the games that you and your team have made over the years. I'm looking forward to playing more of them in the years to come. But thanks very much for sharing the last hour and change with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. This was a lot of fun. You ask great questions. (laughs) (laughs) When I can. (laughs) Right on. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Thank you so much for tuning in today to listen to this interview with Ted Price. Hopefully you found his insights into the creative process, making AAA games, lessons learned from running Insomniac games for 27 years, the future of console gaming, where things are going, all of that insightful, interesting. And if it wasn't entirely clear from my very effusive opening, I cannot recommend the Game Maker's Notebook podcast highly enough. If you find this podcast even remotely interesting, I can absolutely guarantee that you will love it. So please do check it out. Again, that's the Game Maker's Notebook. You can find it anywhere and everywhere. As always, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk again real soon. Bye.